Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Of course, the psalm divides so nicely into three easy sections. As God reveals himself, first six verses, God reveals himself through creation, uh, six, uh, seven, through uh, 11 or 12 or 13, God reveals himself in his word. And then at the very end, um, we see uh, that this is our response to it. And so it divides nicely into three sections. So naturally, we'll divide it into four uh, just be, because there is so much. I mean, really, this psalm is, is very important for us. And if you've not read Psalm 19, it's, it's relatively short and straightforward. And it is as if the rest of the word is not insightful. Uh, psalm 19 is very insightful for us into the way that God reveals himself and the way that God communicates to us. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I will read Psalm 19. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes to your word that our hearts and minds might be enlivened, that you would give us understanding. Lord, reveal yourself to us today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 19 is for the choir director, a psalm from David. So David is the author for the choir director. It is to be sung. So this is a a song, a psalm. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, we're going to just cover the first six verses today, but I will read the entire psalm so we get an idea of all of this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. So the question is, uh, what's the right way to live? How? Uh, who was a Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live, wrote this great book. If the scripture is true, how is it that we are to live? Well, there are lots of, lots of spiritual confusion out there about how it is that we should live. And some have one way and others claim no. And they have another way. Others say, really, you have to choose your own way. And I love this. Whatever feels right to you, you must do it. Whew. 
You know, we can't live by that, my goodness. Okay, how many of you have had feelings about something that were destructive? Man, I really want to kill that person. Feels right to me. Okay, no, you just can't act on, on those things. Philosophers, educators, politicians, hey, pastors too, will give you ideas on how you should live. But really, there is a place, hint, about where, how we should live and how our lives should be governed. We need not more speculation. We need not more self-definition. We have definition, and it comes from the Word of God as to how we are to live in this world today. Now, Psalm 19 is really about the morning. Okay? And if you go and then go back a few pages and read Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is much about the evening. So Psalm 19, David is in a sense looking at the morning and the rising of the sun and, and the beauty uh, as, as the darkness fades away and the light comes up, uh, the beauty of creation, and he's just marveling at this. And then, of course, Psalm 8 it's almost as if he's out in the field watching the sheep and he looks up at the stars and he sees the vastness of these stars and he goes, what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, look at the immensity of the heavens. Look at the beauty and, and, and the distances between the stars. But you care about us. How can this possibly be? So Psalm 9 gives us, a, in a sense, a morning perspective on God's glory. Psalm 8 gives us an evening perspective on God's glory. Well, it is a psalm, and it is to be sung, and it is to be sung in worship. This is not a theological treatise, although all of Scripture is theology as well. But we have to remember in its context, it was to be used as worship. But there are five quick things that, that we can draw from this, okay? We can draw from, and really we're dealing with the first six verses here, that God is infinite in His power. Now, we say, oh, and, and I don't want that to seem like it just rolls off my tongue. God is infinite in power. I can't even grasp infinite. Okay? They have that little sign. It looks like an eight laid on its side. Right? That's, that's for infinity. And if you trace your finger, you say, I'm going to start here. Where am I going to finish? Well, I, I don't know. Did I start at the right place? I just keep, it, it's infinite. Okay? We can't, our minds are finite. Time is a gift from God to us. He's outside of time. He doesn't need that. He is infinite but not just infinite he's infinite in his power okay and we saw from the reading of the just the early parts of the first chapter of genesis he speaks and it comes into existence speak something into existence for me will you raw materials that's the word i wanted raw materials okay you, we have to have a raw material we have to have a tree before we can make a book god doesn't need a tree he makes the tree he speaks the tree and it happens now if you take your Bible and you close it, you keep your finger in Psalm 19, close it, and let's say, now I didn't figure this out, because numbers, you know, math, that's, some of you can figure this out, I didn't figure this out. If you say this is the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 93 million miles, it's the distance of this Bible, okay? The distance to the nearest star would be 71 feet that way. Okay, just to get some perspective on it. The distance uh, of, of our own galaxy from one end to another would be 310 miles. Remember, this is Earth, this is the Sun. Okay, this is Earth, this is the Sun. So we're giving a perspective on how vast this is. The edge of the known universe, if on this scale, would be some 31 million miles away. Okay, so that gives you some idea 
of the vastness. And that's, that's just what we know now. I mean, what did we know 200 years ago about the vastness of the universe? Think about what we will know in 200 more years. I mean, you watch those space movies, maybe we'll be out there, you know, finding all kinds of stuff. I don't know, but that's the vastness, and this is a demonstration of God's infinite power. Secondly, not only God is infinite in his power, but he is consistent and he is faithful. And you would think, well, God is infinite in his power. He can do whatever he pleases, but yet he is always consistent. He is not arbitrary. He does not change his mind. He does not say one day, I'm going to do this, and then go, oh, no, I'm really not going to do that. I'm going to come over here and do this. God is consistent. We see the sun rises. Well, we know the sun doesn't rise, but that's the word we use. Sun rises and sets each and every day. It is consistent. You can count on God to keep his word and his promises. The third one is God is radiant in his splendor. Verse 5, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Now, I have the joy to do a lot of weddings, and, and some people in this congregation I have married, and I want to tell you, uh, you know, I don't get to hang out with the bride that much. I get to hang out with the groom, because, you know, the bride has her own this group, okay, cadre. You know, the pastor can come in and say, you ready? But they don't let me come in much. Well, the, the, bride, the groom is usually, the bridegroom, he's usually upstairs, and he's kind of goobery. <laughs> so we got to make sure he gets down here and and you i've seen some some grooms and and perhaps i was this way i probably was they're just you know those doors open in the back and there she is now she he saw her yesterday and she looked the same right but he sees her today in a completely different light and you can just see some of these guys you know they're getting rubber legs and, <laughs> and then she's coming down the aisle and and they're just they uh, They can't think anything else. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, God is radiant, okay, in his splendor. It's it's as if the bridegroom is coming out. Now, in the old days, the bridegroom would come out and go across town and pick up the bride and bring her back. And then they would have the wedding. Well, this is God in his radiant splendor. The sun rises. It's a picture of God's power and his beauty and his glory and his holiness. Fourth, God is consistently strong look at the second half of verse five it rejoices as a strong man to run his course not only is god strong but he doesn't use that for anything except his perfect will and he is consistent in the exercise of that perfect will the sun rises it sets it runs its course god is consistently strong what would happen if the sun varied just a few degrees what if we were not this far away from the sun this far what if we were this far from the sun oh we'd be toast okay what if we were this far from the sun frozen if you've ever seen that movie okay that's the way we would be we would be frozen god is consistently strong okay he is consistent in his purposes he is consistent in what he does and how he carries them out and he does those for our blessing he is that way so that we might enjoy him And, of course, the fifth one is God is omnipresent and omniscient. He is everywhere. He knows everything. Sun's rays get everywhere. Nothing in the world can hide from its heat. Remember, David is writing this in the Middle East, and it gets hot there. And, and, you know, this is the way that God is. 
He searches you out. He knows all about you. He knows more about you than you understand. He knows your motives. He knows what you're thinking. He knows the secrets that you hold in your heart because we all have them. Those thoughts that I think nobody else knows what I'm thinking. Yeah, the Lord knows. Well, nobody saw me do that. Yeah, the Lord saw you do that. You can't hide from him. You can't. And the quicker we understand that and come to grips with it, the better. Because he knows those things about you. Okay, there might be things that you wouldn't tell your best friend that you were thinking about or that you were doing, but the Lord already knows them. And yet it was while we were still in our sin that Christ died for us. He still wants you. He still has a hold of you, even in the midst of that. All right, those are five quick things that we can grasp from the psalm as a whole. So let's, let's dig in here a little bit more. So perhaps most importantly from the first six verses, there is abundant and unquestionable evidence of God's existence and of God's glory here. Now we'll see in 7 through 11, 7 through 12, that he reveals himself in his word and what that means. We'll look at that over the next couple weeks after this. Right now we're looking at how God reveals himself in his creation. Now he does this in in his glory. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And you'll remember that glory in the Hebrew also carries with it uh, the connotation of weight. uh, Also carries with it the connotation of worth. So the heavens are telling of the, the, the realness, the substantialness of God, of the worth of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Remember, we say the work of his hands, but he doesn't really need his hands to create. Um, what's the, uh, gee, I always refer to the kids' catechism. Maybe it's easier for me. Um, guess, uh, can, we, can we see God? Somebody help me. No, because... God is spirit, okay? So does he have hands? Well, you know, that's kind of an anthropomorphizing of God, giving us a picture to help us understand. But we also already saw from the first chapter of Genesis, he spoke and it was. So he doesn't really need hands to create, he just simply needs to speak things into existence. So we see abundant evidence of his worth and of his glory every day the sun, every night the stars. They tell about the greater glory of our Heavenly Father. Uh, And really, if you choose to ignore the revelation of his creation, it's not because of lack of evidence. It's not because you can't go, I don't see it. Okay, And we'll see in a moment why that's an impossible statement to make truthfully. Okay, Look at verse 4. Their line has gone out through all the earth. means the message of the existence of God and of his glory extends through all the earth. There is not a portion of the earth and the created order that does not declare God's existence. It does not declare his glory. It does not declare his worth. It is inescapable throughout the entire created order. If you live in the universe, you are without excuse You have to see God's power. The reason people do not see the evidence is not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. The reason people do not look at creation and come to the conclusion that there is God is not because they can't figure it out here. It's because of this problem right here. 
It is a moral issue in their own hearts. As Paul put it in Romans 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so they are what? Without excuse. It doesn't say mostly without excuse. It says they are without excuse. The evidence is there. It's, the problem is people do not want to submit to God. They do, it is a moral issue within their own hearts. Charles Spurgeon says, There's no need for an education to grasp the evidence. You don't have to be literate to grasp God's general revelation. It speaks with unwritten words to everyone alike. In fact, being educated in the speculations of proud men may hinder you from grasping the simplicity of God's revelation and creation. He doesn't say education is bad. Okay? We don't think education is bad. He says what? Being educated in the speculations of proud men might hinder you. Remember, I went to a seminary in, in Pittsburgh that was pretty liberal when I was there. And, and I had seminary professors who, you know, they, how do I say this? They, some of them hardly believed in God, and some definitely did not believe that Christ was the only means of salvation. Because I saw that clearly in class. I had one professor look at us, and when I say us, you know, I hung out with these Methodist guys in seminary because they were all good guys, and we were on kind of the same schedule. And, and she looked at us and kind of pointed, it was talking to the whole class, but pointed up here and said, the only reason you evangelize is because you want to strengthen your own position of faith. And I looked at the other guys, and I said, you want to respond to that? They said, well, what do you what do you say to that? Okay, why do we evangelize? Christ said, go and do what? Make disciples. It's a command from Christ. It's not to solidify my own position of faith. It's so that the good news can go forward. They had plenty of education, but very little faith. Okay, Not that we educate ourselves out of faith, but it is the, what, the speculations of proud men might hinder it be educated, be wise, be knowledgeable. We have many people in this congregation, many people who are here today have advanced degrees. Okay, I can remember sitting in a session meeting in the early years I was here and I looked around the session and I thought I'm the least educated person in this meeting. Okay, um, and, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in over my head. Okay? But they were wise in the things of faith as well. And that's what the Lord calls us to do. Now, years ago, there was this young missionary couple, and they were off to um, East Asia, Papua New Guinea in, in particular, okay, to take the gospel. There were some primitive tribes there who had never heard the things of Christ. No one had penetrated into that area yet. They were going to take the, couple, take the gospel there. So the couple got there. They, they, they began to um, be integrated into the community, into the tribe. They were learning the language, and as their skills came up, they began to tell them more and more about the things of, of the gospel. When they told the tribesmen the story of creation, and the missionaries mentioned that from their own country, and they were from, from America, many people, that, many people in their country believed that humans descended from apes. Well, the primitive, simple, uneducated people in, in their own language said the equivalent of, well, that's crazy. Who would believe that? Said so that's just pretty straightforward and plain. The firmament shows his handiwork. Again, Spurgeon says, 
The expanse is full of the works of the Lord's skillful creating hands. Hands being attributed to the great creating spirit to set forth his care, his workmanlike action, and to meet the poor comprehension of mortals. That's us. We have poor comprehension. And so God makes it simple for us to grasp that he exists. But it's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. In the expanse above us, God flies, as it were, his starry flag, to show that the king is at home and hangs out his estuan. An estuan is a coat of arms, a shield, that atheists may see how he despises their denunciations of him. Get this. He who looks up to the firmament and then writes himself down an atheist brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. If you stand outside and look at the created order and say, I do not believe in God, Spurgeon says, well, you're an idiot or a liar. One of the two. Surely we can look into the sky around us and, come, and the world around us and come to the conclusion that there is God. But to stop there, to walk out and go, there's God. Is the danger just to stop there and not pursue it anymore. I mean, if you come to the conclusion that there is God, that should drive you to want to know this God, to know why he has created you and placed you in this perfect world. To stop and say, okay, there's God, and to walk away is to simply be a deist. Okay, is simply to be a deist. Uh, the, the philosophy of deism is, you know, shrunken down is like the clockmaker. You dig in the ground, you find a clock. You must assume that there's what? A clockmaker. Okay? So the deist says God started the world, he got it wound up like a clock, and then he walks away and he doesn't have anything else to do with the world. Okay? In modern theological views, this is called uh, process theology, that God starts it, he steps back, and he does not intervene into the world that he has created. What does that mean if God does not intervene into the world that he has created? Okay, you go back to Genesis, he created it, he steps away. What are we missing now? Oh, if we just run through scripture, we're missing flood, we're missing uh, exodus, we're missing parting of the sea we're missing everything that is supernatural and so when we get to the new testament you can't have christ because christ comes from outside of the created order that's already in existence you you do away with christ so naturally deists are really works oriented they are um there are five things that the deists believe Uh, deists were uh the philosophy of deism came from a guy named uh herbert of cherbury um, 15, late 15, early 1600s. There are five things that make up a deist. There is one God who created the world but no longer intervenes. So there's nothing miraculous, nothing supernatural. Why in the world should we pray if God's not going to intervene? Secondly, there's an objective difference between right and wrong. The deists are moral. They like the ethics of Christianity, but they don't believe in Christianity. Okay? They say there is a right and there is a wrong, so they want to retain the basic ethics of Christianity. Third, it is our duty to support the right. So deists are at least moral, that they pursue the right and want to live out the things that are right. Where do they get the things that are right? That's a question. As Christians, we get the things which are right and wrong based here in God's Word. But we believe that this is the revelation 
and comes from God. It's not just the words of men, but it is inspired by God. So that comes from outside. So the deists have a problem with this. And, and if you've ever seen a, a, a Bible written by Thomas Jefferson, you know, I, I, I have one somewhere, not here with me today, and I've held it up before. It's about this thick, you know, about the distance between the earth and the moon. Okay, <laughs> we go back there. It's not very much because Jefferson has gotten rid of everything that is supernatural because he was a deist and did not believe that God would act in the miraculous. We go to the New Testament, no 5,000, no virgin birth, no feeding the 5,000, no virgin birth, no resurrection. Those things are gone. But they do want to live right. Fourthly, the, the deists think that they are immortal, that the soul is immortal. And, well, what difference does that make? The fifth one is if you do enough good things, you will get to heaven. So deism relies upon their own works. A deist relies upon his own works to get himself to heaven. Now, the creation that God has made, let's go back here to 19, verse 2, or verse 1. And, and the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, I had a professor once who said the best place that she experiences God is sitting under a tree. And I wondered if, if the tree was speaking to her if, or what that meant exactly. But she didn't elaborate on it. But here it says what? The, the heavens tell of the glory. Their expanse declares the work. Day to day pours forth speech. Do the, does the creation speak to us? Well, does it speak to us of the glory of God? Does it speak to us of his mighty power? If you've ever been in a hurricane, creation speaks about its mighty power. If you've ever seen a tornado, you know the power of the created world. Um, but it doesn't speak with words. If you walk out and see the beauty of the world. If you walk out and see the colors and, and the complexity and the intricacy of the created world, it's not speaking to us with words. It's not speaking to us as I would speak to you, but it is declaring the glory of God. It is declaring God's existence in all of those things. Okay, God is pouring forth communication to us through the sky and the expanse of the heavens. God is pouring forth communication to us in the beauty of the created world, in the complexity of the created world. He's telling and speaking and proclaiming to us that he exists. And for those who don't hear him, it's a moral issue. It's not, I can't figure it out. It is a moral issue. I love the things of sin too much. Let's go over to Romans chapter 1. We're going to touch on just a couple verses uh, here in the New Testament that, that will help uh, help us understand these things even a little bit more. Paul is telling us, Romans chapter 1, that this message is constantly pounding in our ears. It is constantly being revealed to us through our eyes. All we have to do is walk out with our eyes open and listen to the world. Now that sounds overly simple, simple but that is what Paul is saying, that you can't miss these things. You can't miss these things. Romans 1 
verse 19. He says, because that which is known about God is evident where? Even within them. Now, think how complex you are. Not just complex emotionally, okay? But complex physically. What does it take for me to move across the podium? How many muscles have to move? How many thoughts have to originate from my brain? Uh, How much air do I have to take into my lungs? Uh, How about ride a bike? How about hit a golf ball? How about hit a fastball? Okay, how about those those receivers who go up and contort their bodies in such a way and and grab it with one of their big hands and bring it down? Uh, How complex are we to be able to do that? Not, Not even getting into the area of how complex we are to think and to problem solve and to reason and to be rational and all of those things. I mean, really, did we just happens by happenstance did we come to be this way no it is evident within even within our own hearts for how for god made it evident to them god has revealed himself to them in this way verse 20 for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse I didn't know. Did you open your eyes? Did you hear the world? Did you see the world? You are without excuse. But what about those who, who don't know? Well, you can't, you, nobody can't not know because the world is around. That's what Paul is saying here. It has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Paul is saying that the revelation that God makes in nature gets through to every human being wherever they are. So that on the last day when someone stands up and says, but God, I didn't know you existed. He says, no, that's not an excuse. You are without an excuse. Yes, you did. There is no one in the world who's going to be able to say, I didn't know God existed because creation reveals it. You chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. It's a moral issue. It's sentence right here from the heart. They say, I didn't believe. Why didn't you believe? Because you love the creature more than the creator. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 17. Go back a couple pages. This is Paul at the uh, Areopagus, and he's debating with the Athenians here, and they're used to that. This is a kind of an intellectual debate. And in Acts 17, verse 28, Paul is stressing here that the God who is the creator, who is worshipped by Christians and who worshipped by believers, is intimately involved in the creation. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So Paul is is attempting to tie in what they already have said and what they already know about the existence of God, and he is bringing in the truth of what he knows from the existence of Christ, and he says, this is the truth. In him we live and breathe, we have our being. Okay? Even your own poets have said this. Paul says we are his children here. And, and he stresses God's active involvement in our lives. It's not as if 
Paul is saying, and God created us and left us alone. He said, no, it, in him we live. In him we move. In him we have our very existence even today. This is the God who has made us and reveals himself in creation all around us. One more passage, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Go to uh, verse 15. This, this is talking about Christ and how Christ is in creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And what? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay? This is not God started it and walked away. He says, we are held together by the work of Christ. It is Christ who is intimately involved in all things that go on. He is actively involved providentially holding all things together. This is the work of Christ in creation here. All of these things, Paul says, get right to the human heart. Right to the human heart. All you have to do is open your eyes and see it. Now, am I saying, uh, just repeat it, don't put away your intellectual side, but understand that reason will not get you to Christ. Reason and the things that are revealed to us get us to God. What gets us to Christ? It is revelation that gets us to Christ. You can come to the conclusion by looking out in the world, God exists, that there is something beyond me that has made this, it is complex, it is beautiful, and I am here, and, and I can breathe, and I am warm, not too warm, and I am cold, and not too cold. Everything seems to be perfect. What else is there? That's the step that drives us to Christ. But to understand Christ, it has to be revealed to us through his word. We have to declare it. We have to proclaim it. That is the job of believers. The word was created, the word was revealed to us. We are called to demonstrate it and speak it and preach it to others. If you understand that God just didn't start things up and walked away and is never involved in our lives, God is not like that. He is intimately involved in our lives. And as the natives said, well, it's stupid to think otherwise. It's stupid to think that there's not a God out there. If we could reason our way there, God, he would not have given us verses such as Romans 1, Acts 17, Colossians 1. If we could simply reason our way. But reason is not knowledge. Reason is a way to get us to the source of that knowledge. Reason itself is not knowledge. It's a way to get us to the source of that knowledge. Spurgeon says it is not merely glory that the heavens declare, but it's the glory of God the heavens declare. For they deliver to us such unanswerable arguments for a conscious, intelligent, planning, controlling, and presiding creator that no unprejudiced person can remain unconvinced by them. The testimony given by the heavens is more than just a mere hint. 
but a plain, unmistakable declaration, and it is a declaration of the most constant and abiding kind. Yet for all this, to what avail is the loudest declaration to a deaf man or the clearest showing to one who is spiritually blind? God the Holy Ghost must illumine us to the things of Christ. We'll know more about that as we dig into the rest of the song. Let's pray. Lord, we get up every day, look at the world around us, and we say, well, this is where you've put us. But this is your world. You have created it for us. The heavens declare your glory. They declare your existence. They declare your infinite worth. And for those who don't see it, Lord, it's just it's an issue of blindness, moral blindness of their hearts. But Lord, we know that there are people out there who see it and question and go, well, there must be something beyond us. But they have not yet stepped to the point where the things of Christ have been revealed to them. Lord, you call us to do that, to reveal to them the things of Christ in our lives, the way that we live, the attitudes that we hold, the compassion that we demonstrate, and also, Lord, in the words that we speak, to declare the things of Christ, to declare his grace and his mercy, to declare the truth that he gave his life for us, that we might be his sons, that we might enjoy the inheritance that he has for us, that we might know his graciousness. Fix this in our heart, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.